Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnson directed film The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And Jim, we've got a uh, another very special guest with us today, a returning guest, our first returning guest, if I remember correctly. It's been about seven minutes, I think, yeah. It has uh, been. It my, feels my... a lot longer, Brian. It really does. <laughs> my name is Brian Fees. I'm a writer and cartoonist. I've done comics uh, such as Mom's Cancer, The Last Mechanical Monster, and relevant to today's minute, Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow? Well, the World of Tomorrow being the uh, 1939 World's Fair, which has, plays a rather prominent role in these next two minutes. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, about that in just a little bit. But first, as we're inside the hangar uh, out there in Long Beach of uh, a rather famous a- aviator, and uh, we're looking at three examples of his uh, present and future works here. It's 1938, but there's a couple of things that are still in the works uh, hanging off the ceiling. How maybe you'd like, like to talk about uh, Mr. Howard Hughes and, and what these machines mean. Sure, absolutely. Uh, right w- when this minute starts in the lower left, you see some technicians down there. Uh, working on the H1 racer, and that was a you know purpose-built speed machine. Uh, that one first flew uh, right about 1935, so it'd be a few years old here. So not not at all unreasonable. No uh, no anachronisms there. And you know that was one of those remarkable airplanes. This, this golden age. We've talked about this with the GB. Uh, we've talked about this with some of those other airplanes. That you had, you know, private citizens, and of course you know wealthy industrialists like uh, like Howard Hughes building airplanes that were faster and better and sleeker and hotter than anything that the military had. So it, at something like 352 miles an hour, the H1 definitely was in that, uh, in that category, definitely outpaced, uh, what, uh, say what the U S army was, would have been flying at about the time it first came around. And, uh, you know, we look over to the right a little bit, we see this, uh, really, really well done mock-up. In fact, it's, it's only been recently that I've convinced myself that it is a mock-up of the Pitcairn, uh, PCA two auto gyro. And I know it's a mock-up, because there are two that survive. There's one at the Henry Ford Museum in uh, Greenfield Village in, uh, near Detroit, and it's been in that museum for decades. And the other one is uh, right here in Oshkosh, uh, in our museum at uh, EAA. And uh, that one was definitely not, uh, you know, given movie paint and used for the film. So uh, it's a very well done, uh, very nice, uh, nicely done mock-up, which, of course, we'll see the auto gyro later in the film. Uh, and then, of course, finally, hanging up there, we see a silhouette of uh, what was originally the uh, the HK1 and redesignated the H4, better known as the Spruce Goose. And this one is a little bit anachronistic because Hughes really wouldn't have been working on this design here in 38. This didn't really start until 1942 and Henry Kaiser, Kaiser Aluminum Liberty Ship fame, he was the one who came and said, you know what, let's build a cargo ship of the sky. But he wasn't uh, didn't have the aviation background, so he started with Howard Hughes about four years in the future. So maybe he was tinkering with designs for a large transport, but seems a little unlikely. It, it's what he's. It, it, I mean, it, it's the the plane that I think most people associate with Howard Hughes, even though it's <laughs> a time machine would be involved in this uh, situation. Right. It had to work somehow. Oh, absolutely. And it does play a, a later role about an hour. Yeah, it does. And <clears throat> you know, when you consider, uh, you know, if this is the worst thing that I can find in this film in terms of sort of you know, attention to detail and things like that, I, you know, believe me, never sit down and watch Pearl Harbor or something like that with me. <laughs> you'll, you'll hate yourself and then me and then yourself some more. And then Ben Affleck. Huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that other guy with the hair and the squint, I forget. Anyway. 
Uh, well, we get our, speaking of Howard Hughes, we get our first reveal here with the back of his head, and it's none other than uh, Terry O'Quinn of uh, Lost right. fame, or maybe a Commander Riker's old boss from the Pegasus on a, a particularly uh, wonderful episode of uh, The Next Generation. And uh, Terry's in good form here as, as Howard Hughes. I mean, he's coming across as a very serious-minded guy who just lost something very important to him. I, I was excited to see uh, Terry O'Quinn's role because I didn't remember that that was him until I was reviewing it for the purposes of this this podcast. And uh, he comes on and, oh, it's him. And actually, I, I did a quick uh, quick review of different different actors who played Howard Hughes over the years. And, and we got Warren Beatty, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, of course. Uh, Tim Matheson played him. Tommy Lee Jones has played him. Dean Stockwell's played him. And I think in in these few scenes of The Rocketeer, the Terry O'Quinn's as good as any of them. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know if you'd count Jimmy Dean in that with the uh, Diamonds Are Forever uh, issue. Oh, with with that's, White. oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> with yeah. the voice changer and everything yeah, else. Yeah, Bert, Bert Saxby, oh tell gosh. him he's fired. That, that's, for, <laughs> that's for another movie minute somewhere else. And that whole opening scene where, you know, who's in the, the casket? It's my brother. I got a Bretta. <laughs> That Connery just comes back, small world. <laughs> oh, man. Also appearing in this scene is uh, one of my favorite actors, and actually our link to uh, one of my previous uh, uh, podcasts, The Airport Minute, uh, on the left there is uh, the character actor William Boyette, who uh, is probably most famous for being, he, he, play, he played uh, the head of uh, the Transglobal Airways uh, mechanics uh, guy that couldn't do the job that Joe Petroni did. So that's uh, William Boyette, but he's probably best known for his uh, role in The Hidden, which was a great 80s film where he's possessed by an alien oh. and uh, he, he likes fast cars. So his, his big line from the show was, I like that car, I need the keys. If you get a chance, watch The Hidden, great, <laughs> great cult film. Uh, so Howard is looking pretty disappointed here uh, as he finds out about uh, what Walensky had mentioned, what happened to his uh, Cirrus X3, meaning that it was destroyed out on the out on the runway. Uh, the current, current, the colonel here, William Boyette, says, "Well, it's better lost than in the wrong hands." But right. he doesn't realize the shape of this project right now, and the, the, the shape of this project is it's over and done. You know, a quick little detail uh, at, at minutes, or should be seconds, you know, because the whole thing is a minute, uh, twelve and thirteen or so, as as uh, Hughes is walking away from the window and put, getting put the phone down on the desk. You look back in the far left uh, corner. There's a desk model back there. Um, you sort of a blink and you'll miss it. And it's, it's I'm about 95% sure it's meant to be the Lockheed uh, Super Electra, um, which I believe it was in June of 38 that uh, Hughes uh, did a record setting round the world flight in. So that airplane would be very much on his mind here in April of 38 as he's thinking thinking ahead to that. Wow. That's a nice yeah. pickup. Nice. It's the beauty of mo movies by minutes. You get to see every little frame of the thing. <laughs> movies by minutes with nerds. Yeah. <laughs> Well, with experts. Yeah. Experts. Yeah. Wow. I've always liked you, Brian. I've always <laughs> liked you. Well, speaking of minutia, we're looking uh, as uh, as uh, Howard is getting increasingly d disappointed at the, the failure of getting the uh, Cirrus X3 back, uh, which we finally get a, a, at least a blueprint version uh, for, for the first time of seeing what this X3 thing is. And it does look like some kind of a double, double nacelle something or other, I guess. Shape not too different from that uh, vacuum cleaner that uh, we saw uh, Wilmer toss in the in the authorized personnel only box. So this is a hint of what the one that we uh, discussed in the vacuum cleaner yes. minute. Right. <laughs> the, 
the legendary episode. Yes, and we do get um, a hint of more of what it is, except only if you have Blu-ray and only if you have really, really good eyes. Uh, to the left of the uh, blueprints that we're looking at in around second 30, there's a letter from uh, the Hughes Aircraft, or it says from the Hughes Aircraft Corporation explaining what the Cirrus X3 is about. And uh, thanks to paying way too much attention to this thing, uh, let me just read a little bit of, of this. It's to uh, Mr. Siegel, uh, who is supposed to be the chairman of the New York World's Fair, which uh, I think they got that wrong because uh, uh, that would be Grover Whalen was the original. Uh, well, he was the chief designer, and he also stood as one of the chairmen. Uh, Robert Moses was another one. Um, yeah, just fictional. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds close enough. Nobody, nobody can sue, so that's that's that. Um, but it says, "Dear Mr. Siegel, Hughes Industries uh, proudly announces the development of the Cirrus X3 rocket, engineered by the finest technicians at Hughes Aircraft Company. The Cirrus X3 will allow you to rocket into the future. On display at the 1939 World's Fair, the Cirrus X3 will be viewed upon as clearly the most important technological transportation breakthrough in the history of mankind." And it goes on and on from there, saying that. People can use this to travel anywhere they choose. Um, they'll get away from uh, crowded waterways and highways and just be able to go anywhere anywhere they want to or were meant to go. So it's uh, rather it, it's amazing the, the amount of detail that Joe Johnson, uh, the director here, had or, or the art department under Joe Johnson had, had decided to put in the movie with, I guess, in the hopes that someday somebody would be freeze-framing on those particular frames. <laughs> exactly. In a technology that didn't exist yeah. yet. <laughs> right. It's amazing that, uh, too, it, it, it strikes me because it wasn't until you uh, you zoomed in and transcribed this thing for us, Jim, that, that I really got to sense for that substance of that, uh, that letter. And it's, it's so remarkable to me that it's just truly about just individual transportation. Just you want to get somewhere, put this thing on. There's no sense of, you know, well, we're going to start it. And Hughes already has the line about turning anything into a weapon. But it's just it's, it's incredible that that's. That's how they were laying this out, is that they just want us all to be able to rock it everywhere. Yeah. So and, the, and darn it, why can't the I? The answer to that question, where's my <laughs> flying car, is, well, he, Howard Hughes had it, right. but then he burned it in a fireplace. So it's... Exactly. Um, <clears throat> one other quick thing uh, before we move past uh, second 30 here. Another little uh, a little detail in the upper left, uh, sort of above the letter. You see there's the sort of the black leather HH, probably a logbook or some other folio of Hughes's. And then... Underneath that is uh, would be a, a it's a period appropriate flight computer. It's a circular slide rule, um, sometimes made out of aluminum, sometimes out of a heavy cardstock, and <clears throat> used by pilots to do you know time and distance calculations and figure wind wind correction angles and all that kind of stuff. The thing that's remarkable there's two things. Number one, uh, that sort of grew into what we call the E6B, which is the the one that pilots used for decades and decades, and it's the one you see Spock using a few times on the original uh, original Star Trek series. But uh, what people might be surprised to learn is that we still use that to this very day for flight training. Um, as soon as you pass the written test, you install an app on your phone and you never look back. But but uh, just a few months ago, I was teaching a room full of millennials how to use a uh, how to use a slide rule that was virtually identical to the one here uh, here on screen. Uh, it's just it's got another component to it where the wheel can slide up and down. Well, it doesn't need batteries. That is a good thing about it. So. Yeah, absolutely. It'll never it'll never fail, you know, unless and it, it evidently works in outer space yeah. too. Exactly, <laughs> and can be used by aliens. So go figure. For for all those crosswinds, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, the solar wind, yeah. you know, it could be coming from some other sure. direction. 
Wow. So uh, we get to an interesting point, uh, actually, how what you were saying earlier, that this was a, a different time when the military really wasn't in, in front of everything. And uh, the colonel here says that he, uh, it, as you were saying before, that uh, people, people in Washington want to turn everything that flies into a weapon. And uh, the colonel says, I must insist. And uh, Howard Hughes put, lays it out for him that he says, I don't work for the government. I cooperate at my discretion. So he's... Uh, there's, yeah, there's some neat storytelling here that kind of impressed me in this minute. And in, in, uh, there's a lot packed into this little exchange between the, the, those men. Uh, first of all, we, we, we're told that this, this Cirrus X-3 is, is deadly dangerous. And, and the bravest, most skilled pilots Hughes has have died trying it out. So that's going to tell us something about the risks of using this thing later in, in the movie. Um, it tells us that Hughes is kind of a, a, a go-your-own-way maverick, and he's going to probably, we, we are set up to expect, respect a, a kind of a lone wolf taking this thing and going off and doing his own thing. You know, When the Rocketeer gets his rockets, he's not working for the government. He's not. He's not working for the Army Air Corps. He's uh, he's off doing his own thing, and that's that's kind of a, a um, an extrapolation of what Hughes intended in the first place. So you know they set up a lot of things here that I think pay off later in the movie. Yeah, it's, it is great uh, narrative strategies. Uh, you know, really laying, putting putting the shotguns on the wall right now. So we're exactly we're, uh, we're getting to the point now where. Uh, Hughes has had enough. He's uh, he's picked up his folio and turns around and uh, seems to be ready to do something. And we do notice there is a fireplace directly behind him. But uh, in this particular minute, we don't we don't see what he's going to be uh, doing with that folio. But it can't be very good. And uh, he just, uh, there's an air of finality. One thing that I wonder about is the. I realize this is a secret project that he was working on, but I can't imagine that the entirety of the XC project fits in a, a single folder about that thick. I've, <laughs> uh, when I used to work for uh, an aircraft company, uh, we had airworthiness directives that were many times the size of that for all filings and things. So I can't imagine uh, I can't imagine the paperwork. Well, I guess it was the 30s, so there wasn't that much paperwork involved, but. All the drafting papers and, and, and other things. Uh, I would think it's all in Hughes's head, yeah. Jim. It's all in his right. head. <laughs> so uh, I guess he's not getting rid of his mind palace, but he is planning on getting rid of that uh, <laughs> that, that folio. Um, really, a great minute. This is a great setup. I, I realize that they're they're doing exposition without doing a lot of exposition. You still, we're still not quite clear on. We know it's some kind of a rocket. We know that it's it has something to do with. Uh, you know, it's it's dangerous, as you said, and it's something that the army wants desperately. It seems like it will change the balance of power with whoever holds it or operates it. So uh, th th that is a good uh, good first act exposition here, and uh, we're get we're going to get some more uh, complications in the next minute. But uh, anyway, well, thank thanks so much for being with us here, uh, Brian, on on this first uh, this first minute. And uh, if you can come back tomorrow, we'll we'll chat some more about. Uh, where this is going and, and the state of the 30s what you know why all the, why all this stuff was so concentrated on the future where uh, what people were thinking about uh, in, as the 30s were coming to an end i will set my alarm and be here awesome. tomorrow so uh for folks listening in if you'd like to join in, in the conversation we're available at all the usual places uh, available at rocketeer minute on twitter uh, uh, Rock, there's a Rocketeer Minute Bull, uh, Bulldog Cuff Cafe on uh, Facebook and of course the great big site RocketeerMinute.com where you can get yourself a copy of the Rocketeer if you haven't seen the movie yet and you can also uh, leave, leave comments about this particular episode or catch up on any of the previous ones 
But we'll pick this up here tomorrow, Tuesday, on the Rocketeer Minute. So we'll catch you then. Until next time, over and out. Go get him, kid.